Chapter 18 of Six Years in the Prisons of England by a Merchant, edited by Frank Henderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 In Prison Again I See the Prison Director for the Last Time Gentlemen Prisoners A Will Forger A Warning to Others Fenians Treatment of Political Prisoners Another Jailbird Having recruited my strength in hospital, I was again discharged to resume my work in prison. Shortly after my return to my old quarters, I thought I would inform my friends that some of the companions I met with at the commencement of my prison career, who had longer sentences than I had, had been fortunate enough to obtain their liberty, and in addition a free passage to Western Australia, which was worth about twenty L and that I wished them to try and do something to aid me in my race for liberty. But my letter was again suppressed, and not being able by this means to inform my friends of my wishes, I entered my name once more as being desirous to see the director. I anticipated meeting the regular visiting director, who very rarely refused a prisoner the privilege of writing a petition to the Home Secretary, if he had allowed the usual time, twelve months, to elapse since he had obtained the privilege before. But I was even in this doomed to disappointment, and instead of the director I expected to see, I found myself confronted with the old sinister-looking friend I had been introduced to on a former occasion. I told him on making my humble request that I had not petitioned the Home Secretary for several years that, in fact, I had not petitioned on the merits of my case at all, and that I would feel grateful if he would extend to me the privilege, usually granted, to all well-conducted prisoners of petitioning the Home Secretary. Conscience did not seem to be utterly powerless within him, for his eyes would not meet mine. They remained fixed on the desk before him, but his head shook, and his lips muttered, no. I pleaded for a moment in beseeching tones which might have softened a heart of stone, but Bazineau's appeal to Shylock was not more futile than mine to him. The words and gestures with which my supplement attitude was spurned roused all the manhood in me, and for an instant I felt as if I were a free man and addressing my equal, adding language at once dignified and firm, I requested a sheet of paper that I might appeal to the board of directors. My altered mind and tone of voice so unexpected, so unusual in that secret court, arrested him. His hands trembled. He looked as Felix might have done when he first heard of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. My request was granted, and my last interview with a prison director had come and gone. Two days afterwards I wrote a letter to the board of directors, in suitable language, and addressed to the chairman of the board, preferring my request. Month after month passed away, but I waited for a reply in vain. At one time I would have felt both surprised and annoyed that no notice had been taken of my letter, but now I knew that I only had experienced the usual treatment which prisoners receive who have justice on their side. 
I had now made three, and only three, requests to the officials during my prison career, and all these had been denied, and I resolved to prefer no more. I gave my mind healthy exercise in the composition of verses, when I was not otherwise employed, and to a great extent forgot my troubles in my puny flight to obtain a sight of the poet's mountain. The last year of my imprisonment was marked by the arrival of a number of Fenians, and the departure for freedom of one of the two of the very few prisoners whose society had been a pleasure to me. One of these had been the editor and proprietor of an influential country newspaper, and his crime was very similar to my own. He was a man of deep thought and far, very far, from being a criminal at heart. He was the best educated man I met with in prison, and eminently qualified for writing a treatise on the prevention of crime. The other had been in business in London, and had brought up a large and respectable family, having been accustomed to mix in the society of some of the most eminent of the city merchants and bankers. His company in such a place as a prison was a great acquisition. After the departure of these two prisoners, I had only one intimate and intelligent companion left. His case excited my sympathy, inasmuch as he was a very humble and penitent man, with a sentence of penal servitude for life, a sentence, I believe, inflicted not so much for the crime, but on account of the position the prisoner formerly occupied in society, as a warning to others. This is a formula which, in many cases, is made to sanction monstrous injustice, and in all cases, I may say, is practically inoperative. The only parties warned by the fall and punishment of such a one as the prisoner I here refer to are those in the same respectable position in life, because they are the only parties who have it in their power to commit the same crime. The punishment cannot warn those who are not in and cannot attain to the position which makes the crime possible, and who could not find the opportunity to commit it, even if they were paid to seek it. Then why punish such men as this prisoner the more severely, because he was in that position? I know it is urged, in opposition to that view, that such men ought to know better that they have no excuse, and so on. But we must bear in mind that all who do wrong know it. The poor and the ignorant, as well as the rich and educated, unless they are of unsound mind. Then again, do those in a good position in society require more warning than those who have no character or position to lose? It would be difficult, I think, for anyone to maintain that position. The fact is that convention merely, without any subsequent punishment at all, would be a much more effective warning to the former class than the gallows even would be to the latter. The thief plies his trade while the scaffold frowns overhead. It does not deter him, but the lynx eye of a policeman would, even although the penalty was a month's imprisonment instead of the rope. As I have already more than once asserted, it is the fear of being caught that deters the thief, and this fear increases and intensifies 
as we ascend the social ladder. In the case of all first offenders of the law, the punishment is an afterthought, and on that account, as well as on higher grounds, we ought to temper justice with mercy in dealing with all first offenders, more especially with those who offend against property only. In the case of the prisoner referred to, his crime would not have enriched him more than about twenty pounds had he succeeded in escaping detention. He committed will forgery, and of course although the amount was small, still it was a great crime, but I think there might be other methods found for punishing such crimes than dooming the man who commits them to perpetual slavery. I take no notice of the fact that the prisoner in this case maintained his innocence. I assume that he was guilty, and I consider his sentence to be unjust and inexpedient. It is true that this man once sat on the bench and dispensed justice himself. It is also true that he once entertained the Queen of Great Britain in his own house, and these facts, to some extent, determine the severity of his sentence. I find in them additional reasons for leniency, inasmuch as only a very feeble warning is necessary to prevent men in the position he occupied, and exposed to the same temptation, from following in his steps. I may now refer to the Fenians, of whom there were six who came into the prison during the last year of my incarceration. They formed a class of prisoners quite distinct from all the others, and their crime being also essentially different. The observation I have made with reference to the proper treatment of ordinary criminals do not apply to them. In the phraseology of the convicts, they were a rum lot. They took rank between the Aristos and the Democrats, and formed an Irish brigade. One of them died soon after his arrival. Two of them were head-centres, and enthusiastic in the rebel cause. Another was a literary man, Irish to the backbone, but ready to write for money on any side of politics. The remaining two were soldiers, one an American infidel who cursed Catholics and Fenians alike for getting him into trouble. He called the Pope the King of the Beggars, quarrelled with the literary Fenian on the subject of religion, and true to his profession, enforced his arguments by giving his opponent what the convicts called a punch in the ear-hole, and extracting the claret from the most prominent feature in his counting-house. According to the literary man, Ireland had one great grievance, and if that were remedied, the Emerald Isle would grow greener than ever. "'It is a splendid country,' he said, "'for growing tobacco.' and if the Irish were allowed to grow that fashionable weed, they would be the most prosperous of peoples. A vulgar Scotchman suggested that Ireland would be all right if the Irish were scotched, and the Fenians all roasted on a gridiron. The irrescribable Irishman replied that a Scotchman was the incarnation of impudence, and hereupon a war of words ensued, until the officer's attention was attracted and brought it to an abrupt conclusion. The two head-centres appeared to be intelligent men, but very unlikely to raise the standard 
or maintain the dignity of an Irish Republic. One of them was said to be their ablest writer, but the other appeared the most loyal and enthusiastic Fenian of them all. With respect to the punishment of political offenders, the system of restitution which I have advocated would not be suitable, nor would imprisonment in the county prisons answer well. I should not object to government acting as jailers over such men, but they ought to be confined in a prison where they could exercise all their faculties for their own support, and their sentences should be the Queen's pleasure. Some of those in prison might be liberated at once, others not until the rebellion had been completely extinguished, and the government, not the judge, should regulate the period of their confinement. It may be said that the government have power to liberate such men now, when they choose, which is true enough, but suppose that the rebellion lasts or breaks out afresh in four or five years, and one of the most dangerous members of the fraternity becomes due for his liberation. They have no power to retain him. This power they ought to possess in all cases where the sacrifice of human life has been perpetrated, attempted, or contemplated. I would not allow this exceptional treatment of political prisoners to interfere, however, with the fundamental principle I have laid down of making all our prisons self-supporting. I return to my numerous companions, the regular convicts, and the following specimens of some of them whom I met during my last months in prison may not be uninteresting. One day I opened the conversation with a regular jailbird, who had promised me some particulars of his history some time before. Well, you promised to give me a little bit of your history this morning. Are you ready to begin? Oh, I don't know where to begin, and I have seen so many ups and downs, or rather, so many downs and downs again, that I could not tell you a quarter of my history. When did you begin to steal first? When I was a kid, I was sent errands by my mother. She gave me money to buy things for her, and I cheated her often and a fellow that cheats his mother, you know, is rather a hopeful youth. But to tell you the truth, I was partly spoiled by my mother, for she allowed me to do as I liked, and when I grew up, I became acquainted with others like myself, and from prigging apples out of gardens, I got to prigging pockets, and from that I got to be a screwsman and a cracksman. My first long sentence was seven years' transportation, and I never did a day's punishment hardly. In those days the legs went on board ship at once, and were liberated or handed over to a master almost as soon as they arrived. Well, I completed my time, was two years a whaler, and went and settled in New Zealand. And that was the time I had most luck. I was a brickmaker, and made money as fast as I had a mind almost. I remained in New Zealand about fourteen years, and since I came home I have never had a day's luck. I went on the cross and got four years. After I had finished that bit, I went and lived with a mole I knew, and spent all my money. When it was done I went out to look for work, and met with a young fellow who knew what sort of a bloke I was. So he says, You are just the fellow I want, Bill. My master goes to the bank tomorrow morning and draws the wages money. 
After he draws it, he puts it in a drawer in his desk, and then goes out for about an hour, and leaves the office without anyone in it, and I have got two keys for the door and the desk, but as I would be found out if I attempted to take cash, I will give you the keys, and we will divide the spoil. As soon as the way is clear, I will hang out a handkerchief, and then you will know that all is right. Well, I took the keys and went to the factory at the hour named. I waited some little time, and at last I saw the signal agreed upon. Up I goes to the door, as if I had a right to the place, marched boldly into the office, and before you could say Jack Robinson, I had the bag full of cash. Well, off I bolts to my lodging, changed my clothes, and counts nearly one hundred pounds. I got the half as arranged, and never wrought a day work till all was spent. I spent about one pound per day. After that, I took to hawking, and I might have made a living at it, but I got drunk, did a place over, and got caught in the act, and here I am. How many robberies have you committed? Goodness knows. With the exception of the last time I was in New Zealand, I've always been on the cross. What was the largest you ever got? Five hundred pounds. I understand most of these large robberies are put-up jobs, like the one you have mentioned. Yes, most of them are. The risk would be too great if that was not the case. Have you ever been flogged? Yes, severely. How did you like it? Like it? Why, not at all, of course. Who would like a flogging? Would the chance of getting another flogging not deter you from committing another crime? I would as soon be topped as be flogged now, because a good bashing would kill me, but no fear of punishment would deter me if I saw my way clear to get off. I never do a job until I feel certain I'll escape. If I'm caught, that's my fault, and I must chance the punishment, whatever it may be. Another legging would kill me. But if I cannot get a living at hawking, I will be forced to go on the cross, and God help the man that tries to catch me. These places are getting so hot that a fellow had better commit murder and be topped at once. If you had a safe, where would you place it to be most secure? In the street, and then your servants couldn't put you away. How would you carry your gold watch if you had one? Well, I would have one with a patent bow, and I would take care not to flash my chain. If you keep your chain out of sight, you are pretty safe as long as you are sober, and every man who gets drunk ought to lose his watch. The thief should get a reward for doing that job. It's safer, of course, to carry the watch in the fob than in the waistcoat pocket, particularly if the chain is exposed. But it can easily be taken from any part if the chain is seen unless you have a catch in your pocket to hold it. You know the way we do is to twist the bow of the watch and it breaks in a second. What do you get for a watch, usually? From three to six pounds, according to the value of the watch. That seems a very low price to get for a good gold watch. Yes, but five pounds, I assure you, is considered a good price by the man who stands fence and if a fellow can get eight or ten in a day, he may do very well at that. But I have not done any buzzing for a long time. I am too old for that game, and I can't afford to run a risk for five pounds. 
this hot work in prison will make thieves look after larger stakes. I would recommend you very strongly to go on the square when you get out, and not on the cross. You might easily make a better living by hawking than at this weary work at all events. I mean to go on the square as long as I can do without working. I am not able for hard work, and I do not intend to do any more, neither in nor out of prison. But if I can't make a living honestly, you may be sure I shall not starve. End of chapter 18